building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. Hey, so today we're talking to Dr. Hugh Ross, which is going to be such a fascinating conversation because it says in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 to always be ready to give an answer um, for what we believe. And Dr. Ross is an eminent uh, scientist who puts things in a way that people can understand. I love his books. I can't wait to talk to him. Uh, I've read his books now for several years. The amount it has expanded my understanding of not just science, but of God and scripture. Uh, can't be really be overstated. And so join us today as we talk to a man that I think is kind of a scientific modern day C.S. Lewis, a brilliant mind who explains things that are complicated in a way that someone like me can understand. I think you're going to love this conversation. It's a little heady, but I think really necessary as we explore, does global warming actually exist? How old is the earth? How do we know? How big is the universe? And what is our place in it? Dr. Ross, this is such an awesome uh, privilege because I've read so many of your books and I love the way they make me think. They're, they're not the usual Christian books. Got your PhD from University of Toronto and um, you are talking about things that Christians wonder about, that intellectuals wonder about. Um, and you're not saying, well, just just believe Genesis 1 through 3 or believe the book of Job, but you're actually showing incredible logic and science behind why we should believe them. And so I want to get into some of this stuff. And I know some people will be upset because you don't believe that the earth is 6,000 years old and you've got some very reasoned uh, philosophies of why that's true. And you also think that the more full creation story is not in Genesis 1 through 3. It's actually from Job. So I, I can't wait to get into all that with you. So maybe let me just start off by talking about the creation story. Uh, what do we know from science through a godly point of view about how old the earth is and how it came to be? Well, I was not raised in a Christian home, and I got interested in astronomy from the age of seven. And uh, in my teenage years, realized the universe must have a beginning. And there's a beginning, there's got to be a God. And then I went about trying to find the God that created the universe. Didn't really know where to look, so I started off reading the great philosophers, especially Immanuel Kant. And René Descartes was a bit disappointed by what they had to say about the universe. And then I began to look at the world's holy books. And the only holy book I found that was comporting with what I knew to be true from astrophysics was the Bible. And explicitly talks about how the universe has a beginning. And not just any kind of beginning, but a beginning that includes the creation of space and time. And now we have space-time theorems that indeed prove that not only does the universe have a beginning, uh, that beginning includes the creation of space and time, space-time theorems. But today we got 30 of those theorems. And then I also read in the Bible, uh, you know, 11 texts that tell us that the universe expands from its cosmic creation event. And, you know, that's the core of Big Bang cosmology, is the universe not only has a beginning, it expands from that beginning. The Bible also says that the laws of physics never change. So we have constant laws of physics, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And, you know, as a physics student, I recognized in my teenage years, hey, if there's this pervasive law of decay, also known as the law of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics, and this law never changes, that means in an expanding universe, the universe must get colder and colder as it gets older and older. Mm. And today, astronomers have 14 different measurements of the past temperature of the universe. And those temperature measurements perfectly fit the biblically predicted curve, assuming we know the age of the universe. Well, today we know the age of the universe, the fourth place of the decimal. And a couple of my books, I show you the biblically predicted cooling curve of the universe and actual measurements we astronomers have made and it's a perfect fit. How, how you've explained this in your books. I remember thinking there's how in the world could we know the age of the universe? And yet you've explained it. Uh, and it's, it's actually not as complicated as one would think. And we know the density and the mass of the universe. How do we know that? 
Well, I mean, for example, the rate at which the universe cools uh, gives you an age for the universe. Uh, the quantity of radiometric elements gives you an age for the universe. The expansion rate of the universe gives you an age for the universe. And uh, I can name another dozen ways we can determine the age of the universe. Uh, they all give you the same number, namely that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. And the best measurement based on the cosmic background radiation, these are maps of the radiation left over from the cosmic creation event, where you can measure the sizes of the temperature differentiations. That gives us the best measure of the age of the universe, 13.79 billion years, plus or minus 0.04 billion. So what's happened in the last 10 years, we now have an accurate measure for the age of the universe, whereas 20 years ago, we had a measure that was good to about 10%. Uh, now we're getting down to past the third place of the decimal. And just to give people an idea who aren't scientifically minded like me of how big a billion is, because I think we get lost. We hear million, billion, trillion, and we sort of get lost. If you wanted to have a million dollars in your life, if you put $500 per week away for 40 years, you'd have a million dollars. If you wanted to have a billion dollars, you'd have to put $500,000 per week away for 40 years. Oh, and by the way, if you wanted a trillion, you'd have to put $500 million a week away. Uh, not to get political, but just when you think about the government throwing around a trillion here and a trillion there, that's how big a trillion is. But how do you then, so the Bible says God created the, the world in seven days, right? The seventh day he rested. And we have a, uh, you know, we're given the descendants of, of uh, in Genesis that people think, okay, the world, that means the world's 6,000 years old. So how do you take the creation story, this um, story of the descendants in Genesis and Matthew, and then co uh, coincide that with a, an age of almost 14 billion years old for the universe? How, how do you do that with through scripture? Well, after I became a Christian through studying a Gideon Bible for two years and signing my name on the back of that Gideon Bible, giving my life to Christ. It took me another nine years to meet a serious Christian. It took me another nine years to actually meet people who thought these days were 24 hour periods. Cause uh, you know, when I first read the Bible, I said, okay, there's an evening and a morning uh, for these creation days. And it says, you know, this isn't written in English. It's written in Hebrew. And I said, at a minimum, that evening morning phrase tells us each day has a definite start time and a definite end time. I anticipated finding an evening morning phrase for the seventh day, but it's not there. There is no evening morning phrase for the seventh day. And also it says for six days God creates, on the seventh day he rests. So at age 17, I said, I wonder what the rest of the Bible's got to say about the seventh day and discovered that Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 tell us we're still in God's seventh day. And when I recognized that, I said, this answers the fossil record enigma. Because, you know, part of my story is my parents thought I was being obsessive and studying physics and astronomy, because that's all I was reading since the time I was eight. I would come home with four or five books on physics and astronomy a week. They were worried about me. So uh, I was about uh, 10 and a half years of age. They bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology saying, this will get Hugh looking at something besides astronomy and physics. I was the only one in the family that read it. But I told my parents, mom, dad, the numbers don't add up. You've got all this new life appearing before humanity and hardly any afterwards. What's going on? They said, ask your science teachers. My science teachers couldn't help me. They told me to ask the science professors I knew. They didn't have any good answers. But when I picked up the Bible for the first time, for six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops creating. I said, that answers the fossil record enigma. Mm. Why would mm. see new phyla, new classes, new orders appearing before humanity, but we don't see any of that after humanity? For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he rests. But that implies that these creation days in Genesis are consecutive long periods of time. 
And I recognized that was an option because Genesis 2-4 uses the word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. So I said, okay, this word day must have multiple literal definitions because creation day one uses the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four uses the word day uh, for a 24-hour period. And Genesis 2-4 uses the word day for the entirety of creation history. So I've always believed that the way to interpret Genesis 1, God created through six consecutive long periods of time. And then on the seventh period, this is when he stops creating and focuses on his work of redemption. And I think what nailed that for me is looking at Titus and 2 Timothy, which state that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything at all, which implies that everything God creates is for the purpose of making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. And so what we do at Reasons to Believe, we interpret science in the context of redemption, basically saying the best way to understand the fine-tuning of the universe, Earth, and Earth's life is everything is fine-tuned to make possible, within a short period of time, the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. In fact, I would go so far to say every component of the universe, Earth, and Earth's life, and every event plays a role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. I actually challenge my secular peers saying, if you want to be a better science, do your scientific research from a biblical redemptive perspective and see if it won't make you more successful. You know, I have often wondered why God made the universe so big. And you actually go into some illustrations. Um, having written a couple of books, I can't remember what I wrote in all my books, but if you can happen to remember some of your illustrations about the actual size, the number of planets, uh, it, it, it's more than the human mind can actually comprehend. And you, you think what you just said, I totally agree with. Why did God go through so much effort to make it so big? And and the the, the theory I have is that it comes from the book of Job which you have really helped me to understand and really appreciate. Part of our sinful nature is we want to control everything. And when you see people who are lost in their sin enough, they control their wives or their husbands, their kids. They they become abusive. Um, part of that is we want to explain everything. We have to understand everything. And so my the thing I've come to is the reason it's so big is God is trying to show us we can't control anything and we don't know anything. And that's kind of the story of the book of Job. You have this unbelievably godly man who God thinks so highly of, he's bragging to Satan of. But what Job has to come through to the realization of throughout that journey is even though he's super godly, he doesn't really know anything. And that, <laughs> and that leads him to a humility that allows him to draw close to who God really is. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, we're constrained by the space-time dimensions of the universe, which puts a limit on what we can know. I mean... As an astrophysicist, I don't ever have to worry about being unemployed because we now know everything there is to know about the universe. That's right. never going to happen. I mean, we're just scratching the surface. And that's true of all the scientific disciplines. And I reassure my uh, friends who are theologians, you don't have to worry about becoming unemployed because we now know everything there is to know about the Bible. One of the evidences that the Bible must be from God is that its content could not be plumbed. If it was written by a human being, you'd be able to plumb the information content. But we can't do that with the Bible. There's still more to learn. So that should keep us humble. Uh, but one of the books I wrote was called Why the Universe is the Way It Is. I love that book. Yeah, and I address the question, why is it so big? Uh, why is it so old? And basically making the point that you know, one of the primary reasons why God made the universe the way he did is to be a tool in his hands to eradicate evil once and for all while he enhances our capacity to experience and express love. And for that to be possible, uh, God needs to structure the universe with certain laws like gravity, thermodynamics, and electromagnetism. And what you see in the book of Romans chapter 8 
is at the moment that the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed, then there will no longer be this pervasive law of decay. And you see this in Revelation 21. In the new creation, there is no death, there is no decay, there is no thermodynamics. And if you actually look at the description of the new Jerusalem, uh, there is no gravity. And the description of light, there's no electromagnetism. God doesn't need those laws anymore because in the new creation, evil is no longer a possibility. But right now it is. It is a possibility because God's greater goal is that we'd be able to experience more of his love. And for that to be possible, we have to be temporarily exposed to a universe with laws of physics and be exposed to sin and evil. As Jesus says, in this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And, you know, I joke with my uh, non-science friends saying, there's another way we can paraphrase that text. In this world, you'll have thermodynamics, but take heart, I've overcome thermodynamics. I mean, as long as you've got thermodynamics, you're going to experience uh, you know, pain, you're going to experience suffering. But the whole point, God is using all that to achieve a greater good the complete eradication of evil while he exponentially expands our capacity to experience and express love. So that's the real reason why the universe has to have 200 billion galaxies, where every galaxy has a couple of hundred billion stars. Uh, make the universe even the tiniest bit less massive, you wind up with a universe with only hydrogen and helium uh, for all of its existence. And in such a universe, there's no possibility for life. If you want a universe with carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, the total mass of the universe must be exquisitely fine-tuned. Make it any bigger, make it any smaller, we wouldn't be here. Which tells me that God loved us to such a great degree, he didn't consider it too expensive to put us in a universe with 100 billion trillion stars and planets. I mean, he says, these humans are worth it. I'll do it. A hundred billion trillion. It's so funny because it's just so beyond our capacity. I, I read one one time, and maybe you you'll you'll know this, but I read that there have not yet been a trillion seconds since Jesus was born. Yes, you're right. That's how big a trillion is. And you just said a hundred billion trillion. That's just well, it's only at some point. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> For example, we talk about the number of uh, protons in the universe. That's 10 to the 79. So there's way more protons than there are stars or planets. Uh, but when you start calculating the degree of fine-tuning, I mean, if you were to assume everything we see in planet Earth is here by the operation of the laws of physics without supernatural intervention, the possibility of that happening is more remote than one chance in 10 to the 1,050th power. And every month that goes by, we have to add three more uh, numbers to that exponent. That's how rapidly we're discovering additional evidences for the supernatural fine-tuning of the universe and the Earth. That's why I tell skeptics when I speak on university campuses, if you're not persuaded today, wait one month. If the evidence gets a thousand times better than it is today, then you need to seriously consider the truth claims of Scripture. So, Dr. Ross, is it boggle your mind that you're all by yourself. I mean, not totally, but almost when you look at what scientists believe that they can believe the garbage that they believe that this all happened by chance. I mean, it's got to just be almost hard for you to conceive that they could actually think that this just all happened by an explosion and in enough time made it everything just so orderly. Well, let me assure you, I'm by no means alone. I mean, for example, we've been building a scholar community of reasons to believe. These are PhD level scientists who sign our doctrinal statement, our Christian behavior statement. Uh, they endorse the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, affirmations and denials, and they're committed to bring their peers to faith in Christ. You know, so far we've built up 150 of these scholars, uh, but I can tell you there's tens of thousands of them out there. Uh, but you're right. People at my educational level tend to be more susceptible to pride. Paul said that in the book of Corinthians, that those that are wise by the world standards 
uh, tend to be so prideful that they think they don't need God. And uh, indeed, you do find more scientists uh, who take a non-theistic perspective than people who are not scientists. But nevertheless, if you were to survey all the research scientists in America, and this has been done uh, every decade or so, uh, the percentage of those that believe in God and an afterlife has been steady at 45% uh, since really? 19- Yeah. Wow. So there is a large percentage. Now, what you do notice in that database, however, uh, is that there's a preponderance of scientists in the physical scientists who believe, and much less in the social sciences, and the biological sciences are in between. Uh, so the more concrete, the harder, the more mathematical the science, the more likely you are to find followers of Jesus Christ. The discipline that's got the highest percentage is mathematics. That's interesting. You know, I was uh, I met somebody who was a prominent uh one of the original astronauts. And uh, he, boy, when I met him, he was in his late 80s. And I went down to witness to him. We spent five hours together in Cape Canaveral going over all the stuff. I actually was armed with a lot of stuff from your books. And we talked science and as much as I could, you know, uh, from my level compared to him. Um, but he was so brilliant. And I remember at one point he, he had uh, written the plan on how we get to Mars that we're actually using. And um, he was talking about he, how he was the one who moved our space launch program to Russia for a while because it was much easier to, to launch from Siberia than from Florida. And I said, why? He said, well, Ken, you know, like I was a complete idiot. And he writes out this long list of mathematical calculations. I still have the piece of paper. I took it from him. He goes, see? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And uh we had a delightful conversation about all the the what they didn't know in the '60s about what would happen, you know, the first spacewalk and what the cosmonauts were doing. And at the end of of the discussion with him, he agreed with me on everything scientifically. Um, I asked him if he wanted to come to know Christ, and he said no. And uh, you know, after it was all over, it was just five hours. It was a, a really a remarkable conversation. And I just sat there and prayed, Lord, what did I what did I do wrong? He wasn't. He, we agreed with me on everything. And the Lord said, cause he doesn't know he needs a savior. And I thought, Oh, I forgot to start off at the beginning of the, the depravity of man. So you're right. You know, you, you can be a scientist, you can have so much intellectual capacity, but you, you well, don't necessarily need. You might know of, uh, it's, uh, Robert Stewart. He's got a PhD. He's also a general, uh, but a really committed follower of Jesus Christ. He's actually moderated a couple of our conferences. Is that right? Uh, there are quite a few astronauts that are uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Mm. Well, I guarantee you it wasn't Robert Stewart I was talking to. Yeah. <laughs> I won't say his name, but uh, it was funny. So um, I've been reading a lot more lately in the secular press about the struggles they're having to hold up Darwinism. And frankly, the, the what I've seen, this is my rough summary of it, is that the top scientists really have thrown Darwinism out and realized it just can't possibly be true the way they believe it, but they don't have anything to replace it with. So no one's really talking about it. Is that, is that accurate? Well, there's still a strong uh, commitment to a naturalistic explanation for the history of life. There is a general admission that the origin of life defies a naturalistic explanation. I mean, uh, we at Reasons to Believe regularly attend Origin of Life research conferences, and the mood there is very depressing because they're doing <laughs> all their research and they're saying we're worse off than we were the last time we met. We're just not making any headway. Although, to be fair, they are making amazing headway in their chemistry labs. But it takes pure chemicals in a highly controlled environment with a lot of technology and very brilliant and highly educated biochemists to duplicate even the tiniest steps that are necessary in the origin of life. And there's a growing recognition that the origin of life requires someone a lot better educated, a lot more knowledgeable and better funded than the biochemists who are doing these experiments in the lab. And in the real world, you don't have pure chemicals. Everything's mixed up. And you don't have chemical reactions that are constructing. You do, but you also have chemical reactions that are destroying. And so that's why you don't get the abundances you need 
under naturalistic of processes. Uh, but there is a strong commitment to the idea that once you've got life, it will evolve from simple into complex. Uh, but what I've noticed in my interactions with evolutionary biologists, they typically look at just one or two disciplines, genetics and paleontology. And what we do at Reasons to Believe is that we take top scholars out of scientific academia and set them free to do interdisciplinary work. And so as I engage these evolutionary biologists and say, have you taken into account the changing physics of the sun, the moon, and the earth? And they say, what has that got to do with life on planet Earth? It's got everything to do with it. The sun today is 23% brighter than it was when life first originated on planet Earth. And the only way you can have life remaining is for the greenhouse gases in Earth's atmosphere to come down at just the right late rate and level to perfectly compensate for the increasing brightening of the sun. And uh, that requires removing life periodically from planet Earth and replacing it with new life. And you actually see this in Psalm 104, where it says the property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the Earth. And you see this in the fossil record, where you have these mass extinction events, where 50 to 95% of life on planet Earth disappears, but then is followed by a mass speciation event, where the planet is filled up again with life. But the new life is more aggressive at pulling out greenhouse gases from the atmosphere than the previous life. And the point I've made in several of my books, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun, the earth, and the moon would know which life to remove from planet Earth and what new life to replace that old life with. If you don't have a mind that knows all that, it's going to go out of sync and Earth will become completely sterile and permanently sterile. So the fact that we see life persisting on planet Earth in maximum diversity and maximum abundance for 3.8 billion years tells us it can't be a naturalistic process. It's got to be the handiwork of a supernatural creator. But the problem with my friends or biologists, they never look at the solar physics. They assume that the sun has been constant. And as an astronomer, I can say that's certainly not true. Its flaring activity is changed by a factor of 100,000. We're now in a very narrow time window in the sun's history where the flaring activity is sufficiently low and the luminosity stability sufficiently high that we can have global human civilization. And so there's a reason why God waited until the sun was perfectly middle-aged, because that's the time window in which we can launch and sustain global civilization and take the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to all the people groups of the world. And a couple of books I've written said, for that to be possible, you need over a dozen very narrow windows of time to simultaneously overlap on one planet. And the possibility of that happening naturalistically is impossibly remote. It's not going to happen unless you've got a supernatural creator engineering it all. Yeah, your books are so fascinating. But, you know, what you just described sounds like the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> you know, when Aslan's breathing and uh, creation into existence and the sun has different luminosities in different places, it, um, I don't, you, you're, you're probably too smart for that. But that's about where my brain is used to. I can read children's books. <laughs> well, I, I've read those. And I mean, you're on the right point, but it's way more spectacular than that. Because it's not just the sun that's got to be fine-tuned. Uh, we have five asteroid and comet belts. Every one of them must be fine-tuned for us to have had this conversation right now. And it's not just planet Earth that has to be extraordinarily designed. The other seven planets must be as well. I mean, Thanksgiving is coming up soon. When we celebrate Thanksgiving, we don't just thank God for the Earth and the sun and the moon. We thank God for Mars and Mercury and Neptune, because they weren't exactly the way they were, there'd be no turkey on our table. So let me ask you some controversial or questions, because I, I just find these things fascinating. And one I've never heard anybody talk about, which is there must have been a massive shift after the Garden of Eden, because I guarantee uh, Adam and Eve weren't running around swatting up mosquitoes. 
And scorpions weren't running around stinging them and spiders weren't making webs to suck the blood out of things. I mean, clearly when the earth got twisted, we see the brutality of nature that it seems wouldn't have been in the Garden of Eden. I can't imagine Adam having to walk through spider webs all the time. Is there a scientific explanation for that? Well, let me just focus on the mosquitoes. Number one, we know that the Garden of Eden was a relatively small geographical region. And uh, at the time God created Adam and Eve, uh, mosquitoes were limited to less than 10% of the surface of the earth. Today, they occupy more than 99%. And we're the ones that spread them from 10% to 99%. Oh. And of the more than 200 different species of mosquitoes, only six of those bite humans. The others don't. Hmm. And so, yeah, so I can easily imagine that Garden of Eden would have been free of mosquitoes. And, uh, but it does tell us that Adam had to work the garden. So thermodynamics was an operation in the garden because he had to work it. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there were stones there that he was stepping on uh, that uh, caused him some pain. Because notice what the text says. When Adam and Eve sin, God says, you're now going to experience more pain. And you're now going to have to do more work. And it's basically making the point, because of your sin, you're going to have to do more work and experience more pain to undo the damage uh, of your sin. But the whole point was there was pain before, uh, there was work before, but now the pain and the work have been greatly magnified because now we got sinners managing planet Earth and not people uh, that are sin-free. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Struggling to balance work and time with your kids? Parenting teenagers? What about having tough conversations about tough issues? Promise Keepers is launching a 14-day fatherhood challenge just for you. It all starts with a one-hour kickoff event live on Facebook and YouTube. Then join us on the Promise Keepers app for 14 days of encouragement and practical application. Join with other like-minded brothers for sharpening conversations and discussions that will take your fatherhood to the next level. Don't delay. Register today at promisekeepers.org slash fatherhood. That's promisekeepers.org slash fatherhood. You had said something earlier I meant to grab onto and I didn't, but this is a good time to, to do it, which is God created the world with thermodynamics, so therefore... He necessarily created a universe that would have decay, and I would assume, therefore, death. So, so therefore, God must have created the world, and how to word this properly to not offend anybody, but with the knowledge that man was going to sin and there would be death and he would have to come back. I mean, because he created a situation in which there, there must have been death. Well, there was death of plants and animals and bacteria and microbes, but there was no death of human beings. I mean, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, hey. So that's a new idea. I want to make sure that I make that clear. I don't think most people think there was ever death of anything. And what you have said in the books that I've read is, no, Adam and Eve saw things die. They knew what death was. It's just right. that humans weren't supposed to die. They weren't supposed to die. And that's made abundantly clear in Romans 5, because it says death through sin was visited upon all people. And there Paul is giving two important qualifications. He says, this death I'm talking about is death you get through sin. Well, there's only one species on planet Earth 
that is capable of experiencing sin, that's us human beings. And he closes the sentence off by saying death to all people. He did not say death to all life. So he's making the point that this is the first time human death occurred. It's not the first time that bacterial death occurred or the death of fungi or the death of plants and animals. They were dying. And you're right, because God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And so Adam must have had some concept of death. And hey, he was tending the garden. And tending the garden means you have to say, you know, clip off some leaves. I mean, so you've got plant tissue that's dying. So he was familiar with that. And your people say, well, Adam didn't die the day he sinned. Well, he did. He died spiritually. And this is the clarification you see in Romans 5, is that when Adam sinned, he immediately experienced spiritual death, which was personal separation from fellowship with God. And then what came afterwards was physical death. Because as you see in Genesis chapter 3, it was possible for Adam and Eve to be spiritually dead and eternally physically alive. And God said, this is not good. Yeah, I'm going to block access to the tree of life. So he sent angels to make sure that Adam and Eve or their descendants never got close to the tree of life. Because God's plan was to use physical death to deliver humanity from the far worse consequences of spiritual death. And what you see in Genesis chapter 6, he said, it's not good for man to live eight or 900 years. I'm going to shorten his lifespan. And we can see this in human history, that whenever a despot lives a long period of time, it's not good for the rest of humanity. I mean, I'm grateful that both Joe Stalin and Adolf Hitler did not live as long as I'm alive now, right now. And God shortened their lifespans. And that saved the lives of millions of human beings. And so a short lifespan is actually to our benefit and God is saying, the 80 or 90 years I'm going to give you, that's more than enough time to establish your righteousness before me and the rest of the angels and human beings. You don't have to spend any more time than that here on planet Earth. And you see that in the writings of Paul. Paul makes a point, it's better that I go home than I stay here. And the one analogy I've used in my books, one time I was taking this very challenging physics exam. It was three hours, and I had to take the exam in a room that wasn't heated in Canada. And so here I was with my gloves on, and I was doing everything I could to get through this test. I was an hour into the exam, and the professor came by and snatched away my paper. He says, you can leave. I said, I haven't finished. He says, I'm going to give you the top grade. There's no longer any need for you to suffer here. You can go. And I think that's how sometimes God treats us. He says, hey, you're 40 years of age. You don't have to experience any more of this thermodynamics and gravity any longer. Uh, you can come with me. And so, you know, uh, if God sees that, uh, you know, you've achieved your purpose here on earth, then he says, hey, you get to come home early. But if he says, I've got a lot more for you to do, I'm going to extend your life so that you can really fulfill everything I want you to do. He'll give you extra years. I was talking to a really godly man um, just a couple weeks ago who had lost a very godly daughter. And um, he was asking why, in a, not in a Job way, but just in a general sort of, I wonder why God takes. And I said, you know, if you really look at the really godly people, and we never know someone's heart totally. But when you look at Oswald Chambers, you look at Keith Green, you look at some of these people who we're so advanced in their abandonment to Christ. God takes them early. And I said to him, you know, I just wonder if that's his mercy. They have earned all their crowns. They've earned all their rewards. They've accomplished everything in you know, Ephesians 2.10 that he had them here to do. And in his mercy, he takes them home. He doesn't make them have to suffer here anymore. They've accomplished their task. Because I don't want to be here any longer than I need to be. The book of Isaiah, uh, making the point, people wonder why righteous people die in their youth and god says is because i know if i let them stay here on planet earth they're going to be facing torments and trials and i don't want them to go through that 
So he takes them early to deliver them from unnecessary pain and suffering. He knows our future. And if he says, hey, you know, you've achieved everything I want you to do, and if I let you stay here any longer, it's not going to be pleasant for you. Hey, uh, just like what that professor did in that room, he said, you don't have to freeze here in this auditorium anymore. You can get to leave. So let me ask you a question that's uh, borderline, not not in your sphere, but I think it'll be interesting. Um, I've asked many theologians this. I, I, I love to ask theologians questions that they can't answer because you know as you were as you were very much into science i was very much in the bible when i was a young boy at 12 i would read the bible every day and then i would ask my teachers at the christian school i was going to so many questions they finally threw me out i'm not kidding and i didn't ask them from a bad attitude i just wanted to know because so much of the systematic theology that people throw around is so full of holes and i go well what about this what about that so i do have a question i've asked people and never can get an answer. And you may have a unique answer, which is the lake of fire. How can God create a place he isn't? And I have gotten one answer from a non-theologian, which is, quoting Isaiah, um, fire comes from God's throne. He's all-consuming fire. And his idea was that um, the lake of fire is simply heaven where you're not forgiven. And so what is pleasant, what is amazing for those of us who are forgiven is actually a tormenting fire to the people who are not forgiven. Now that there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that that was just the only interesting answer I've ever gotten. How can God create a place that he isn't? Well, you're making a good point when the Bible talks about hell being a fire and uh, being a place of torment. Uh, What you see Jesus when he talks about hell is that he uses analogies. He's saying the pain that you're going to experience there is the worst than the pain of being burnt while you're alive. And that is the worst pain you can experience. And he used another image. It's like having biting worms crawling over your body and biting you. That's about the most uncomfortable thing you can think of. And Jesus basically saying, hey, if you think that's bad, it's actually going to be worse than that. And to me, what's worse about the lake of fire is who is there. It's a place filled with demons. It's a place filled with people who want nothing to do with God. And uh, this is why you see in Revelation at chapter 20, he says, there's going to be different levels of torment in the lake of fire. And the Greek word that's used there for torment really means restraint. It's basically saying the individuals in hell are going to be restrained to varying degrees. And basically says they'll be restrained according to the amount of evil they've committed while they've been here on earth. Those who have committed much evil are going to need to be restrained to a greater degree than those who have not committed as much. And it's actually a principle you see in our prison system. We've got different levels of prison, depending on the inhabitants. And so, you know, in some prisons, the level of restraint is relatively mild. In others, it's quite extreme. It's based on the uh, character of the inhabitants that are there. And what I tell people who are not believers, you know, God's not going to send you to hell. You get to choose where you want to spend eternity. If you want to spend eternity in relationship and fellowship with God, he's got a place for you. But if you want nothing whatsoever to do with God, he's got a place for you. But the wonderful thing about heaven It's filled with people who want a relationship with God. And therefore, they're going to be great people to spend time with. Mm. But the horrible thing about hell, it's filled with people who want nothing to do with God. And consequently, the way they're going to be treating you is not going to be all that pleasant. And as I share with people who are not believers, keep in mind, right now in this world, God's Holy Spirit is actually restraining every human being from the evil they want to commit. Believers and unbelievers alike. You know, we still have sin. There's things we want to do. Uh, but I also share those believers. Have you ever had the experience of wanting to do something sinful and yet you weren't able to pull it off? Something stopped you from doing it. And I see that with my friends who are not Christians. They can recall times when they wanted to do some real harm to someone else and something stopped them from doing it. We're being restrained, but in the lake of fire, God gives people what they want. You've been fighting against me. You don't want me restraining you. I'm no longer going to restrain you. However, I am going to have to subject you 
to torment, to restraint, in order to prevent hell from being a worse place than it would be. But I'll give you what you want. I'm going to have nothing to do with you. So the fact that uh, God is not present in the lake of fire is actually an expression of his love. Now, I wrote a chapter in Beyond the Cosmos saying, God's love is expressed even to the inhabitants of hell. He says, I'm not going to force myself on you. If you want nothing to do with me, I'll grant you the desire of your heart. So for hell to be a meaningful place, it's necessary that God not be there. So he removes himself from there. But in order to make sure that hell is not worse than otherwise would be, he says each one in hell will be subjected to the just right amount of restraint. Well, C.S. Lewis said, you know, there's going to be two kinds of people, people who say to God, thy will be done, and people to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. And right. that's really what you're saying, is that his ultimate judgment is giving us what we want. Exactly. Let's talk about Job. You, you write a whole book on it, and mysteries that are found in the book of Job that, that are right there for us to see, most of us don't see. And it, it is very much a, an enlightening uh, book. Also to the point that it's probably the first book of the Bible ever written, and it could be vastly earlier than Genesis. And many people think Genesis starts the story, but really the book of Job may have been around for a huge amount of time before Genesis was ever written. People would have had this. And we see, um, we don't know when Job was written. And I think you put out there that you thought it may have been written around the time of Moses, but it could have been written tens of thousands of years earlier. I think it has to go back to at least the time of Abraham, because it was written at the time of Moses. The priests, uh, Abraham. I'm sorry, sacrifices. I, meant, I meant to say yeah. Abraham. Yeah. So what you see in Job is the patriarchs are doing the sacrifices, which means it must predate the priestly era. The other thing you see in Job, no mention of nations, only city, states, and towns. So it tells us it probably predated the time when nations were being formed, um, and you know, uh, Hebrew didn't really become a written language until the 15th century BC. And what I notice about the book of Job is that almost all of it is in poetry and a style of poetry that can be easily memorized word for word. So I'm speculating that how the book of Job was preserved uh, before Hebrew became a written language it was passed on from one generation to the next by people memorizing it word for word in its entirety. Now, living in the 21st century, we get the idea that's impossible. That's because we got hard drives that can store everything. We don't have to memorize anything. And moreover, uh, I don't know about you, but when I went through uh, public school, they had us memorized thousands of lines of Shakespeare's plays. And today they don't do that anymore. Because after all, you can get Shakespeare's plays on a little flash drive. There's no need to have it all memorized. But the point is, if you go to people that don't have that technology, what you discover, they've got amazing abilities to memorize. And hey, all you need to do is go, is go to the Islamic world. Many Muslims have memorized the entire Quran word for word. And that's much more challenging than memorizing the Book of Job. Uh, but I'm impressed that the Hebrew poetry is written in a way designed for easy memorization. So what you show in the book of Job is is what people don't really think about. You had these three friends and then a fourth joined later. And they traveled from a long distance. And so what we probably have is a worldwide theater. Um, there's a problem. There's a, a man who's massively respected, who was well known in the very small population of the world at that time who is inexplicably suffering unbelievably. Um, and so then we have these three guys come from a long way away. See, these are well-known wise men who are so wise that they actually come gather around Job and nobody says a word for seven days, which, you know, there's an old, uh, I think it's a Japanese saying that the, the one who speaks first in a meeting is an idiot. And so none of these guys wants to be the idiot. It takes them seven days before someone finally starts to talk. So these are deep thinkers and probably the whole world is is paying attention to what is happening to this guy. This is a theater that's being played out greatly. This is just some little guy with a bunch of friends that sit around and have a beer with them. These guys are 
really on a, on a great theater. And then when God breaks into the scene, it's really quite stunning as God is sort of finally saying to these guys, you think you're so wise. What do you know? It's really an amazing book. And you pull out all these creation truths and, and scientific truths that are right there in the book of Job that I certainly never saw. Well, you know, people think Genesis 1 is the text to go to for the scientific details. And what I notice is how much Genesis 1 leaves out. But the parts that it leaves out are the parts that are described in detail in the book of Job. And if Job indeed predates the book of Genesis, there's no need, for example, for Moses to go into a lot of detail in creation day two. There's a whole chapter and a half on that in the book of Job. And so he just has a very short sentence for creation day two. And so I tell people, hey, if you want the scientific details, go to Job 37, 38, and 39, and then integrate that with what you see in Genesis 1. Oh, and by the way, also look at Psalm 104 uh, and Proverbs 8. Psalm 104, Proverbs 8, and Job 37 to 39, those are three texts that take you through the scientific content of Genesis chapter 1. And so it's always a good idea to hold your interpretation of Genesis 1 until you look at the other biblical texts. And what I discovered going through the Bible quickly at age 17 was that there's not just one creation text in the Bible, there's over two dozen. They're throughout the Old and New Testament. And so I challenge people, hey, if you want to really know what the Bible says about creation, read quickly through the entire Bible and focus on those texts that deal with the subject of creation and science. And then look for that interpretation that allows you to read all those texts consistently and literally. Would you give those one more time? Because there are guys listening to those in the car right now, and then now they're trying to back up and find out what you just said. So let's make it yeah. easy on them. Proverbs 8, Psalm 104, and Job 37 to 39. Excellent. And you had said something to me off air um, about the dinosaurs that are apparently talked about in Job, which you do not you do not believe are dinosaurs. And you had said something extremely interesting, which was at the time of Job, nothing bigger than an elephant or in our time now, nothing bigger than an elephant could actually survive because of gravity. Would you uh, just unpack that a little bit for us on why that's true? and why you yeah. think Job is not talking about dinosaurs. Nothing bigger than an elephant, unless you've got water support. Whales, of course, are much bigger than elephants, but they got water buoyancy to support their body mass. Uh, you know, an elephant uh, can move around without water buoyancy. But if you had a creature much bigger or much heavier than an elephant, uh, it would quickly injure itself because of the law of gravity. I mean, uh, you see this in basketball. The tallest players in the NBA are the ones that are most likely to get injured. Why? Because when they trip and fall, they got a larger distance to hit the floor. They're going to do more damage to their body than someone who's only five feet tall. Uh, so when you look at Jurassic Park and see this T-Rex chasing a Jeep, uh, forget it. If a, a T-Rex of that size was moving at 40 miles an hour, all it had to do is stip, uh, stub its toe on a little rock, it would go flying, and it would injure itself to such a degree it wouldn't be able to get up. I mean, So why were they able to survive back when they were here? Because that was a time when the continents had vast shallow seas. So you got like 10 to 20 feet of water uh, covering, like in the American prairie, for example, half of North America was covered by a vast shallow sea. And guess where we find the dinosaur bones? We find them in the Nebraska. Canadian prairie, and particularly by the edge where you got the uh, you know this the shallow sea, because uh, that's what it's going to take to support a land dinosaur that's 80 feet long and weighs 80 tons. It's going to need water buoyancy, and so the fact that we don't have that uh, geographical phenomena today explains why there aren't creatures of that size. Yes, in the oceans, but not in the land masses. And actually, if you look at the book of Job, what you notice is from Job 38 onwards, God's doing the talking. And in Job 39, he talks about the nephesh animals. 
the soulish animals. Because if you go back to Genesis 1, it says God creates three different kinds of light. Light that's purely physical, creation day one, and creation day five, it talks about God creating light that's not only physical, but also soulish. A reference to birds and mammals, how they have the capability to express emotions. They have a mind, they have a will. And because of that, they have a capacity to form relationships with a higher being, namely as human beings. As it says in the book of Job, <laughs> all these animals you've been able to tame. And it says, notice some are easy to tame. It mentions a goat. Goats are extremely easy to tame. Uh, I've been in places where I've seen wild mountain goats, and you can tame them within a few minutes. They really like us, and so they're easy to tame. Uh, but if you look at Job 39, it says uh, the oxen is a difficult to tame animal. Easy to tame if you get it from the time it's born. But an adult ox that's wild, forget it. Uh, it's going to be extremely difficult to tame. And then he says, you've even been able to tame the behemoth and Leviathan. And to this day, they're the two most difficult to tame of all the nephesh animals. But he says... There's a species of life that no human being can tame. And that's a man with a proud heart. He says, just like it takes a higher being to tame the lions, the tigers, the crocodiles, the hippopotami, as difficult as they are, you can tame them. But he says, no human can tame a proud human heart. It takes me to do that. So God's the one that can bring humility and uh, bring us into a tamed relationship with him. Just like it takes a higher being to tame these animals, it takes a higher being to tame us. And I love the book of Job because it makes the point that God designed these nephesh animals to serve and please us and to relate to us. But the reason we don't see that is because of our sin. Our sin causes these animals to be afraid of us and run away from us. But he says, by the same token, your sin makes you afraid of me and makes you want to run away from me. And so our sin causes us to flee from God rather than go where our natural tendencies would have us to come to him and serve and please him. And he says, then look at these animals. Notice when you tame them, they outperform their wild cousins. Likewise, when you become tamed by me, you'll outperform those that are not in a relationship with me. And so I've seen that with people who have come to Christ, is that uh, their ability uh, to perform uh, becomes greatly magnified because of the relationship with, with Jesus Christ, because of the relationship, which is why I think the message of the last five chapters of Job, look to these animals. They will teach you. They'll instruct you. Job actually says that in the 12th chapter. Look to the birds of the sky. Look to the beasts of the field. They'll teach you, they'll instruct you. And he didn't mean biology. He says they'll teach you crucial spiritual lessons. Well, I could talk to you all day, but as we close, I have to ask you the one last question, which I probably should have done earlier, but um, global warming. Now, you do go into that a bit, and you talk about how the methane gas being released by rice paddies with the increased population of America has vastly more to do with, with uh, the greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide does. But, you know, for the people listening to this show are mostly Christian conservative type people who are conservatively minded. And so the global warming thing is something that people tend to listen to. Yeah, whatever. But what should we think about global warming, both that and man caused global warming? Well, I've written a book called Weathering Climate Change, where I go into that from a biblical perspective. People call it the anti-Al Gore book because basically I'm saying <laughs> weathering climate change. Number one, I agree with Al Gore. Uh, global warming is real. Climate change is definitely a threat to our well-being. But rather than saying we need to engage in severe economic sacrifices in order to prevent global warming and climate change, I'm saying God has designed our planet and his resources in such a way that we run into crises of this nature in advance he's provided us with solutions that are for our benefit and simultaneously the benefit of all their life. 
there will be win-win solutions. And there's a big climate conference going on right now. And I agree that this is a crisis of such nature. We need to address it immediately. But trying to get people to agree to economic sacrifices, in my opinion, will not work. And the Bible tells us we humans are fundamentally selfish. So trying to get seven and a half billion people to put aside their selfish behavior, uh, that's a non-starter. What will work, however, is that we give people an economic incentive saying, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, uh, you'll get a, a 15% return per year in your investment. I'm not going to have to encourage them to do that. There'll be no need for politicians to pass a law. If we can give them that kind of an economic incentive, they say, sign me up. I'll do it tomorrow. And uh, so there are things we can do that would rather quickly uh, resolve uh, climate uh, change, stabilize the uh, global temperature, boost the world economy, especially for the poorest nations of the world, and improve the ecosystems of all the ecosystems on planet Earth. Everybody wins. And so what I've done in my book, Weathering Climate Change, is to give you about 40 different things we can do uh, that would stabilize the climate while we put more money in everybody's pockets, especially for the poor, and we improve the uh, wildlife ecosystems around the world. And, and personally, I think that's the only way we're gonna address this crisis uh, in the time span it needs to be addressed. But the wonderful thing is the politicians don't have to get involved. Just show people the economic incentives, stand back and let them do uh, what's in their own best interest. Now, I'll just give you one. You know, there's so much emphasis that we have to immediately stop all fossil fuel uh, consumption. But one of the fastest things we can do to address uh, global warming is to immediately stop using coal and use natural gas instead. Natural gas is still a fossil fuel, but it only emits one half the greenhouse gases of coal. And there is no black carbon soot. I've written papers making the point that the reason why Canada is warming five times faster than the rest of the world, it's the recipient of black carbon soot uh, from India and China. And what we could do is to go to the Indians and Chinese and say, we can supply you with natural gas for less than what you're paying for coal. They'll immediately say, hey, sign me up, I'll do it. And uh, that means no more black carbon soot, means you only get half the greenhouse gases. Yeah, you're still warming up the planet, but it buys you time to go with thorium nuclear reactions. And everybody says nuclear uh, energy is a bad option because of all the toxic waste. That's because you're using uranium. If you use thorium, number one, you get 300 times as much energy per ton of thorium than you do per ton of uranium. And you don't have the radioactive waste problems that you do with uranium. Uh, it's impossible to have a meltdown in a thorium reactor. It's impossible to make nuclear weapons uh, from a thorium reactor. Mm. So it means we could actually give these thorium nuclear reactors to rogue nations without any worry that they're going to use it to make bombs. You can't make bombs out of thorium nuclear reactors. If you try, it'll kill you. So, uh, but it takes time. It's going to take about 10 years to gear that up. Uh, but we talk about other things as well. Uh, if we were to transfer, for example, what we do here in North America, we're protecting our forests, but we're overprotecting our forests. We'd be far better off to let lumbering companies go into our national parks and selectively remove the big trees that are in danger of dying. That's where you make the most money, is through the really big mature trees. And if you let them die, they release greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. If you harvest them, they become preserved as homes and furniture. And so uh, it's not going to release greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And new studies show uh, that young and middle-aged trees pull up to four times as much greenhouse gases of the atmosphere than the oldest trees in the forest. 
Moreover, you're not going to give a, a window of opportunity uh, to the bark beetles. I mean, I've visited some of our national parks where a third of the trees are dead. The reason why a third of them are dead, there's too many trees. If we were to selectively harvest, that would mean the trees would now have enough water per tree that they could fend off the bark beetles, which means the tourists will be happy. The trees will look green instead of brown. The wildlife will be happy because there'll be more room to run around in the forest. It's not going to be so clogged with trees that they can't move around in it. Uh, and people, it'll support more wildlife. Again, the tourists are going to love it. And so uh, let the lumber companies come in during bad weather in the wintertime when the tourists aren't there and all the wildlife is hibernating and make life better for everybody. You write books in such a way that they're eminently readable. And, uh, you know, brilliance is the ability to say complicated things in a way that everybody can understand. That's why C.S. Lewis is the great theologian, not because he was necessarily the smartest, but he could say it in a folksy way that people could get very complicated um, ways of thinking and the way they could get it. You have a great knack for doing that as well. Um, well, the if, credit really goes to my wife. Like you, she's an English major. She taught English at a college. And so we joke here that she's a translator for all of our scientists. <laughs> uh, takes our material and she's hired a team of other English uh, majors. And so uh, they translate it so that non-scientists can understand it. Well, thank her for me. I will. I will. I was able to understand your books. And I would encourage everybody listening to this. This is this is important. Christians, we too often get into debates and arguments through ignorance, and we actually hurt the cause of Christ. Stick with what you know and, and expand your mind in greater ways. And I think there, there is a vast chasm of, of um, a lack of understanding in most Christians when it comes to science, because somehow we think that it doesn't align with Scripture. No, the Bible is the greatest scientific document out there. And we need to know the Bible and we need to augment it with the thinking of people in the body of Christ with skills different than our own. Dr. Hugh Ross has a great understanding of, of how to unpack scientific truths from Scripture. And then the next time you get into a discussion with a famous old astronaut like me, you can actually sound like you know what you're talking about. Sounds great. <laughs> Thank you for all you're doing. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to On The Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.